February 24, 2022, Russian forces, which had been massing on the border with Ukraine since November of the previous year, crossed the border to begin their invasion of Ukraine. In the weeks leading up to this invasion, the Russian government claimed nothing untoward was happening as they slowly built up nearly 100,000 soldiers all along that shared border, and then eventually along the Belarusian border with Ukraine as well. Belarus's government being fairly strongly allied with Russia's government, almost to the point of being politically and militarily subsumed by their much larger and more powerful neighbor. During this build-up period, Russian officials said they were engaging in military exercises, and they did perform some exercises, including one round in late January 2022 that involved thousands of Russian troops and dozens of jets near an occupied portion of Ukraine, annexed by Russia in 2014, called Crimea, which is a fairly vital piece of real estate as it is strategically located along the Black Sea and houses the naval base Russia has long used for its fleet in the region. Russia and Belarus stepped up these exercises in mid-February, and fighting, which had been ongoing for years between the Ukrainian government and Russia-supported separatist groups in the eastern Ukrainian Donbass region, escalated to an intensity the region had not seen for years. On February 21st, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that he was recognizing the independence of two regions in that eastern portion of Ukraine, which triggered an earlier threatened round of economic sanctions from NATO countries. This was similar to what happened in the buildup to Russia taking Crimea in 2014. And then a few days later, on the 24th, Russia attacked, Putin calling the invasion a quote-unquote special military operation, saying that Russia had no intention of occupying any part of Ukraine and that they were merely supporting those would-be breakaway provinces and their right to self-determination. This claimed goal would change a few times over the next several months, and seemingly accidentally published victory editorials in Russia-controlled publications suggested that Russia's intention in those early days was to hit Ukraine's capital city, Kyiv, hard and fast, launching a decapitation attack that would take out the government and replace it with people loyal to Putin, effectively capturing the country for Russia, making it a bit like Belarus, but perhaps even more closely tied to the Russian government. This didn't happen, though. Instead, we saw tens of thousands of Russian soldiers march toward Kyiv, with Russian jets and tanks taking out anything big enough to target or put up resistance. Those waves of military personnel and hardware slowly eroded and whittled at by the vastly outnumbered Ukrainian forces. More Russian forces crossed into Ukraine from the east, moving in from those separatist regions, and victory after victory was announced by the Russian government, with reports of atrocities committed by the invading forces following in their wake as international watchdog groups moved in, checked for mass graves, interviewed survivors, and assessed the state of civilians in the newly occupied towns and cities. And things looked pretty grim. And Russia was only really held back for any period of time in some isolated areas in the east and around the capital. So the area in which things were looking grim was rapidly expanding. In March, Russian forces in the south took the Kherson province, which was strategically vital for their intention to build a land bridge between mainland Russia via those aforementioned breakaway republics and the Black Sea territory they've held in Crimea since 2014. 
Lines of Russian tanks made it to the outskirts of Kyiv by mid-March, but they were stalled and eventually stopped, with manpower and spare part shortages paired with staunch pushback from the city's defenders, effectively holding them off. Russia expanded its efforts and rerouted its capital invasion forces to the east, and at this point, one month in, NATO estimates suggested that Russia had already lost somewhere between 7,000 and 15,000 troops, with something like 40,000 dead, wounded, captured, or missing, which is just a huge number that early into any modern military campaign. In late March, Russia announced that it didn't really want Kyiv anyway, and that its main goal all along was actually to consolidate its hold on Luhansk and Donetsk, those two breakaway republics in the eastern part of Ukraine. The UN estimated that 3.7 million Ukrainians had been made refugees at this point, and that's just the number that were officially tallied fleeing into neighboring countries. By early April, that officially tallied refugee number was up to 7.1 million people. Residents of Buka, a town northwest of Kyiv that was held by Russian forces until they left to refocus on the eastern part of the country, reported that they were tortured and threatened while the Russians occupied the city. U.S. President Joe Biden called for Putin to be tried as a war criminal over these torture reports. Economic sanctions had been incoming from the international community, especially NATO and NATO-aligned nations, since the beginning of the invasion, but they really kicked into high gear in April as the EU began to ban imports of Russian raw materials like coal and lumber and fertilizer, alongside a ban on exports to Russia of things like jet fuel and various technologies fundamental to their manufacturing capabilities. On April 14th, Ukrainian forces sunk a Russian flagship warship called the Moskva, which was situated in the Black Sea, winning a small psychological victory. But two days later, Russia's defense ministry announced that they controlled the port of Mariupol, which was fundamental to Ukraine being able to export goods like grain and food oil, though Ukrainian forces continued to fight there in small pockets through the end of the month. By early May, the EU was unveiling its sixth round of economic sanctions, which included a very monetarily significant ban on the import of Russian oil, effective by the end of the year. And Ukrainian forces limited the amount of Russian gas passing through its territory into the EU. Finland and then Sweden announced they would be seeking NATO membership after decades of neutrality, and Ukrainian leaders announced counteroffensives aimed at retaking territory recently captured by Russian forces. The European Commission announced that they would wean themselves off all Russian fossil fuels in five years, at a cost of something like $220 billion. The U.S. government approved a $40 billion aid package for Ukraine, about half of which was intended for military aid and supplies. And at the tail end of May, President Biden announced the delivery of more advanced GMLRS and HIMARS, guided multiple launch rocket systems and high-mobility artillery rocket systems, respectively, to Ukraine after a decently long period of hesitation over concerns that providing such long-range weaponry might incentivize Ukrainian forces to attack into Russian territory, which could expand the scope of the conflict and maybe even trigger a world war. The EU then banned Russian oil and petroleum products immediately, rather than waiting for the end of the year. And heading into June, the UK announced that they would be sending long-range rocket systems to Ukraine as well. Mid-June, Russia substantially cut their natural gas exports to the EU, down to 40% of its usual capacity, and the EU invited both Ukraine and Moldova, the latter of which feared attack from Russia if Russian forces made it through to the western portion of Ukraine, which borders Moldova, to become candidate countries on the path toward eventual membership in the bloc. 
Later in June, NATO formally invited Finland and Sweden to become members after Turkey withdrew a veto threat. Russia re-increased the scope of its declared military goals to include territory beyond the separatist regions in the east, and in July, Russia and Ukraine agreed to a United Nations brokered and organized deal to allow the export of Ukrainian grain, which was desperately needed in some poorer countries around the world, many of which were facing famine conditions, even as fighting continued around the areas conducting the hauling and loading and shipping of said grain via the Black Sea. At the end of July, Russia further cut gas shipments to the EU, down to 20% of the usual capacity. Energy ministers in the EU agreed to a voluntary gas usage cut across most of the bloc of 15% through March of 2023. And headed into August, the Ukrainian military began to make full use of that previously promised longer-range rocket hardware from the U.S. and U.K., taking out a whole lot of Russian hardware and ammo depots, a slew of grounded warplanes, and several command posts and other Russian fortifications. Concerns about Europe's largest nuclear power plant located in Zaporizhia, which had for a while been occupied by Russians who held Ukrainian power plant workers at gunpoint, began to spread and the chief of the United Nations announced that damage to the facility risked a nuclear disaster in the area, encouraging the two sides to allow UN investigators in to make sure the plant wouldn't become another Chernobyl. President Putin ordered that 137,000 more soldiers be called up for use in the invasion of Ukraine by the end of 2022, but it was unclear where those soldiers would come from, drafted, volunteers, or otherwise. And at the end of August, Ukrainian officials announced that they were launching a counteroffensive in the south. The first half of September was defined by a seeming head fake by the Ukrainian military. Their counteroffensive in the south pulled a great many Russian forces away from northern portions of the country, leaving Russian defensive lines thereabouts pretty thin. Those lines were broken by a huge push from Ukraine, which then rolled through previously lost territories, recapturing dozens of towns and cities in mere days, and cutting off those now further south Russian forces from their main supply lines and reinforcements, while also reclaiming fairly vital choke points in Kharkiv. Russian leadership claimed their forces then made a strategic retreat, though even some of their allies, like the leader of Chechnya, wondered publicly what was going on and whether the people orchestrating this war from Russia knew what they were doing. Several dozen Russian municipal deputies signed a petition calling on Putin to resign, and a slew of Russian celebrities and thinkers called for an end to the war and or a change to Russian leadership. What I'd like to talk about today is what's happening in this conflict now, and what might happen next post-Ukrainian counteroffensive, and in the wake of a major announcement by the Russian government. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today, following that decently long intro, comes from Reuters, and it's entitled, Flights Out of Russia Sell Out After Putin Orders Partial Call-Up. The big news of the week, as of the day I'm recording this, and because of the fast-moving nature of this jumble of stories, there's a decent chance that at least some of the details, but perhaps broader strokes of this story as well, will have changed by the time this episode goes live. But the big news, as of right now, anyway, is that Russian President Putin has ordered a partial mobilization of Russian combat-trained troops. 
What that means in practice is that Russian military reservists have been ordered to report for duty, and that in theory at least means Russian citizens with military training, which is most men in the country, as conscription is required of all male citizens ages 18 to 27 as of 2021. Some number of those men will be required to report for duty in order to shore up Russian forces, though the wording on the mobilization order has been left, probably intentionally, pretty vague so that its implementation can mean all sorts of things depending on the evolving needs of the Russian government. One Russian spokesperson has suggested this will mean around 300,000 Russians will be called to serve from a total pool of something like 25 million potentials. But there are reports that the order itself says about 1 million will actually be summoned and put into service. And there are other reports that currently the majority of people being summoned to present themselves for duty are from rural areas outside of the major wealthier and more politically influential cities and from minority groups, which has raised additional hackles, but also concerns that this might be an effort to deplete some of the populations of those groups while also shoring up their forces. Many of those reports are currently unconfirmed. Now, we will probably know more about the specifics of all of this eventually, but right now those in charge have been playing it somewhat coy, in part probably at least, because of the negative public response to this announcement so far. As was alluded to in that headline of that Reuters piece, this announcement was not welcome news for a whole lot of Russians. There have been calls amongst the more hawkish wing of the Russian media class in particular to pivot toward a full mobilization in Ukraine. Since the beginning of this invasion, Putin has called this a special military operation rather than a war or actual invasion. And this type of euphemism can be helpful for governments that don't want to trigger special laws or in some cases public sentiments about full-on warfare, often because it allows them to avoid changes to how the economy is set up or political fallout from committing the entirety of a nation to full-scale war when doing so wouldn't be popular and when there's a good chance you can achieve your military goals without having to do so. Up till this point, then, Russia has been conducting, formally at least, a not-war invasion of Ukraine. And now Russia's president has said, okay, we're still not engaged in total war with Ukraine because that would be beneath us. That's the implication, at least. But he is saying that, in essence, the whole of the West, meaning NATO, the United States, etc., is lining up against us and they want to destroy us and they're forcing us to commit more of ourselves to this conflict. Thus, we are bringing in our reservists to fight because, in his telling of the story at least, the West has forced us into this fight that we didn't want, and now they are lining up on the opposite side with the neo-Nazis, again his words, in Ukraine. And we need more resources, especially boots on the ground, to counter that. And we are capable of countering it, but probably not with what we have in Ukraine right now. The hawks in Russia are not really keen on this because it's still not full-scale war, so it seems a little weak and ineffectual. And the majority of the Russian population, as far as we're able to tell at least, are not keen on this because it means they'll actually have to put skin in the game for an invasion that they weren't super excited about to begin with. Not necessarily super against it, at least not overtly, but most Russians, according to surveys that have been conducted by outside parties at least, have proven mostly agnostic about this invasion. They don't particularly care one way or the other. There are two primary rationales being given by folks in the military analytical space for why Putin is trying to mobilize in this way right now, rather than in a different way or at some previous point in the conflict. 
First is that in four Ukrainian regions that have been captured by Russian forces, two that were captured several years ago, and two more that were captured recently, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson, they're planning to hold what's being called referendums to join the Russian Federation. They're going to vote on whether or not they should join Russia and leave Ukraine, basically. These referendums are generally considered to be fake. Much of the international community has already said they won't honor them as serious votes, and they primarily serve to give Russia political cover for taking another country's territory by force. Such votes allow them to say that they're just adhering to the will of the people, when in reality these votes are predetermined, sometimes by outright falsifying numbers, sometimes by encouraging people to vote in a certain way by threatening them, and sometimes by only allowing certain people to vote. Whatever the specifics, these are broadly considered to be not legitimate votes that are meant to give conquest the veil of legitimacy typically reserved for democratic processes. So there's that. And that series of votes has been delayed by the other main rationale for moving in this direction, that recent wave of successes by the Ukrainian military that I mentioned in the intro, which has allowed the Ukrainians to achieve some substantial military victories, and perhaps even more importantly in some ways, to achieve serious local and international psychological victories. Beginning in September of 2022, the Ukrainian military, bolstered by a whole lot of new and powerful Western-made and donated weaponry, especially high-end artillery pieces that have allowed Ukrainian forces to take out strategically important Russian holdings, made a big push into southern Ukrainian territories held by Russian forces. They made loud and regular announcements about this effort, painting it as a big mobilization that would show the world they can still be trusted to win and are thus worthy of continued investment. It was a fairly convincing collection of propaganda and proved believable enough that a flood of Russian forces moved south to meet them, leaving a wide expanse of territory thinly guarded further north. A huge Ukrainian force pierced that northern expanse and then proceeded over the course of days to recapture what it had taken Russian forces something like three months to claim. As of the day I'm recording this, the Ukrainian military's push has stalled, but it was snowballing for weeks, and during that period they were able to take back a significant portion of the territory held by Russia, and were able to inflict significant losses on Russian forces and infrastructure as well, including in territory held by Russia since 2014, and on Russian defenses along the Russian-Ukrainian border. Ukrainian forces pushed far enough into Russian-held territory to threaten these previously considered to be too far from the action to have to worry areas. The degree to which this success has changed things cannot be overstated, as the perception of Ukraine's military having slowed down had started to worry their backers, the government sending them billions of dollars in money and hardware, but also Ukrainian citizens who had started to talk about peace deals and figuring out how much of their country they would need to give Russia to get them to go home and leave them be for a while. Following this military success and strategic victory, however, the talk on the Ukrainian side is once again about how long it will take to push all Russian forces out of all Ukrainian territory, including Crimea and other regions currently held by Russian-backed separatists. Russia still holds about 15% of Ukraine at this point all of which dramatically increases the potential scope of this conflict in terms of the ground it will probably cover and the time it will take to eventually reach an end point. Russia's government, which again seems to have originally intended for this to be a less than a week long thing, has found itself stuck in a swamp-like conflict, 
almost like Vietnam was for the United States, in that they are the bigger, wealthier, more powerful force by far, but the comparably tiny country they've attacked has been well bulwarked by other governments using it as a proxy. And now they don't have a great way of pulling out without losing significant face, and potentially even their perceived place in the global order. To pull out now, and especially to pull out in a way that would seem acceptable to the Ukrainians and their backers, would imply that the Russian military, which has been thought of as big and powerful, and the weapons they use, which Russians sell to a bunch of other government customers as the world's third largest arms dealer, it would show all these things to be paper tigers. Not a real threat, not a real global force, not a big player. A regional power, maybe, backed by petrodollars and a history, but no longer a reality of being a superpower. Russian President Putin and Russia's government, and a huge chunk of the Russian population, perhaps understandably, would prefer to avoid that kind of humiliating outcome. And it's unlikely, short of some kind of coup to overthrow Putin, and there has been some talk of that, but nothing serious has come of it, it's unlikely that something along those lines would be acceptable or, frankly, survivable for those in charge. So the status of this conflict has been escalated, and there may be hundreds of thousands of new Russian soldiers joining the fight at some point in the next few months because of this new announcement. Now that said, as mentioned in that Reuters piece, one-way flights out of Russia are sold out, and on-the-ground reporting says that many of these tickets have been purchased by men of fighting age who don't want to be summoned to fight in an invasion they don't actually care about and who are thus fleeing the country to avoid being put on the front lines or imprisoned for up to 10 years for refusing to fight. The Russian government has now, reportedly, banned men of fighting age, ages 18 to 60, who are part of this mobilization pool, from leaving the country in addition to the threat of fines and imprisonment for attempting to leave or refusing mobilization orders. The Russian government has said that these reservists would not be sent to Ukraine, but they said the same of volunteers who joined up earlier in the conflict, and many of those volunteers were then sent to the front lines immediately. So that promise isn't being taken very seriously by anyone in or outside Russia at this point. Some analysts have speculated that this effort to pull more soldiers into the conflict might have more to do with political expedience and the need for troop rotation than a real desire to flood the area with more soldiers. Most of the people brought in via this effort will have had little training and will thus be primarily useful for driving supply trucks and guarding checkpoints. Not frontline work, but work that maybe frees up better trained soldiers from such work so that they can rest in between doing actual fighting, which is not something many Russian troops have been able to do recently, according to most reports. Such a move may also help bring the nationalist wing of Russian ideology to heel, giving them fodder, claims of hundreds of thousands of more troops being sent to fight, even if that number, those figures, are a bit misleading, because most of those soldiers will not actually be fighting. And that sort of effort would seem to be increasingly important, as folks on the anti-war front have been showing their teeth as well, more than usual at least. There have been protests in Russia against the war and against this further mobilization, but they've been fairly limited up to this point, only surpassing a few hundred people at a time with the recent mobilization announcement. And even those somewhat larger protests were broken up pretty quickly, with about 1,300 people confirmed arrested for protesting thus far though there's a chance we could see further escalation in the coming weeks. This has not been a very popular announcement. 
Since the invasion kicked off, those who have spoken out against the Russian government's actions have generally been imprisoned or disappeared by Russian intelligence services. So while it's thought that this isn't a very popular move, on top of an already not terribly popular invasion, it's really hard to say what actual Russian citizens think about any of this, honestly, because of how this data is collected, and the major incentives to not speak one's mind on this subject in Russia right now. Unless you're very much in favor of the war, that is. There have been a few recent instances of big-name people speaking out, including a famous Russian pop star and several dozen Russian politicians who signed a petition saying Putin should step down. But these examples are few and far between, and most have been met with similar pushbacks, fines, imprisonment, and other methods of punishing them for not towing the party line. There are indications that Russia's reported shortage of military hardware is beginning to hurt their efforts, on the home front and on the front lines. Putin recently visited with his Iranian counterpart and reportedly ordered a bunch of Iranian-made drones, which have started showing up on the battlefield. There are reports that the Russian military is trying to spin up manufacturing hubs for old-style, even Soviet-era tanks and artillery, as their newer models require microchips and other modern hardware that are hard to come by now that Russia has had their imports limited or banned and can only really access them via black market sources. Many major international companies have pulled out of Russia for similar reasons. Bans on doing business in Russia have made the possibility of continued operation in the region too expensive a proposition to risk. We've also seen Russian allies like China and Turkey publicly question, or bare minimum, show skepticism about, Russia's behaviors, especially now that Putin has threatened, more overtly, to use nuclear weapons against anyone who threatens Russian territory, which could soon include those territories holding the sham votes to join the Russian Federation, and that could in turn influence Russia's ability to buy ammo and other such supplies from their usual providers. Though that's a very speculative question at the moment, as history is filled with examples of governments from China to the U.S. to France and other dealers questioning unpopular things in public, but then happily selling all involved parties, weapons and other goods, under the counter. So even when China makes a big deal of signaling that they don't like Russia's invasion, they may still be selling them arms when the cameras are off. So there's a chance this conflict, even with recent gains on the Ukrainian side, could extend far into the future, especially now that Russia has made the big decision to partially mobilize their economy and citizenry toward that end. Lacking a change in leadership in Russia, an extended conflict seems near inevitable at this point. And that's meaningful beyond the battlefield, as this conflict continues to disrupt international geopolitics and the global economy as well. Energy and food supply chains in particular have been disrupted, especially for the relatively poor world, as much of the grain and food oil supplied to international organizations came from Russia and Ukraine. And though some shipments have made it out under the auspices of a UN-managed ceasefire near the relevant ports, Russia has threatened to back out of that agreement, and earlier supply chains look likely to be replaced entirely for the foreseeable future by overland routes that are quite a bit slower and clunkier. Those energy supply chains are a pretty big deal too, as this conflict and Russia's use of natural gas as a weapon against Europe has forced the EU's hand to transition away from gas and similar fossil fuel-based energy products far sooner than they had originally planned. And that's led to a lot of pain from mainland European nations, 
and to the UK, and that pain is likely to persist for at least a few more years before things stabilize and enough new partnerships and infrastructure can be put into place that they're in a good spot both in the short term and in the long haul. This is arguably a good thing for those worrying about climate change-related issues because it's speeding up that transition in the region, but it will be a very uncomfortable and expensive couple of years for European nations in the meantime, and that supply shortage is rippling outward across the planet, causing all sorts of inflationary effects as well. There's a good chance this invasion has influenced China's perception of things, too, as there were many indications they were planning to militarily bring Taiwan back into their governmental fold sometime in the near future. But now that one of their key allies, Russia, has overextended itself militarily and cut itself off from much of the world economically and diplomatically, China may feel less secure in doing so, especially now that the weapon-producing machines of the West have started to spin back up in earnest, putting NATO and similar alliances back on something approximating a war footing, or as close as you can get to such a footing, without actually being at war directly. Now that said, plans could pivot the opposite way as well. All this upending of international standards and expectations invigorating the Chinese government instead of warning it off now that they've seen what the West might do if they invade Taiwan, and now that they've had the opportunity to put some fail-safes into place to account for those punishments and counter-offensives so they don't suffer as badly as Russia has. Most analysis at the moment suggests that the Chinese government is a bit more rational about these sorts of things than the Russian government, and will probably either wait at least a few years before considering such an invasion, or will attempt to achieve the same ends via other non-military or non-direct military conflict means. But much of that issue is likely being sorted out by the Chinese leadership, and their plans in that regard could be in flux right now, especially since they're in the midst of their own governmental reshuffling this year and into next year. There are a lot of uncertainties at play here then, and though the momentum for the moment seems to be on Ukraine's side, that could change again in the near future, depending on how this partial mobilization of Russia's economy and citizenry plays out. There's always a chance an unlikely event, like Putin being overthrown or pushed out a window, will occur, which will change the math here pretty much overnight. But short of such unlikelihoods, it's probable that this conflict will continue to influence essentially everything else happening in the world, at least to some degree, for the next year or two, minimum. And that will increase instability, continue to upend previous norms, and result in a whole lot of secondary and tertiary knock-on effects that even the most informed analysts of the current moment would have trouble predicting from where they stand in historical context today. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation by Kathy O'Neill. I picked up this book in part because of the subject matter, which is something that I'm increasingly interested in and something that I originally became interested in after reading a book by John Ronson on the same topic called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, but also because this author wrote another book that I really enjoyed called Weapons of Math Destruction about algorithms and some of the threats that they can pose, not because the people behind them are horrible individuals trying to destroy things and hurt people, but because of their very nature. 
And in this book, she looks at another topic that I think is increasingly vital, the way that we treat each other and the way that we, through various means, are incentivized to, or in some cases incentivize others, to shame other people or to shame entities, especially on the internet, but not exclusively on the internet. And in some detail, it addresses what these incentives look like, how they came to be, and some of the pros and cons of those incentives that have led to the shaming culture that we have on a lot of our most popular, and in some cases, for some purposes, most valuable online community spaces. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Shame Machine by Kathy O'Neill. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.